Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Jana Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and this month, in recognition of Earth Day on April 22nd, I'm talking with Maximilian Werner, Associate Professor Lecturer of Writing and Rhetoric Studies, about his recent book, Wolves, Grizzlies, and Greenhorns, Death and Coexistence in the American West. Professor Werner teaches professional writing, environmental writing, and writing about war. He is an award-winning teacher and author of seven books. So in your book, you document your two and a half years of studying and following a wolf pack in Centennial Valley, Montana, and reflect on what you kind of discovered and the people you encountered along the way. So before we launch into any other questions, I am really eager to hear about your experience tracking this wolf pack, you know, how you settled on this specific pack, and just what that experience was like. Well, um, it it might help uh, your audience to, first of all, um, be able to imagine where the Centennial Valley is in relationship to Yellowstone National Park. Um, because it's actually um, considered part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And, and it's also um, directly relatable to uh, why it is that um, wolves are sometimes found in this particular area. So um, if you go um, basically uh, due west from the uh, farthest most point of Yellowstone National Park, um, you then uh, enter the Centennial Valley of Montana. And one of the thing that, things that's important about the Centennial Valley um, and other places like it, although I guess there really are no other places like it ultimately, but is that it, it serves as a, a corridor, a dispersal corridor for um, not only wolves, but also other animals, including uh, grizzly bears as well. So, but to answer your question uh, specifically, um, I first learned about the possibility of a wolf pack in that area um, from my uh, friend and, and I guess teacher, I guess you would call him Bill West. And, and Bill West, uh, who I talk about at length in the book, uh, at the time was the project leader for the Red Rocks Lake, Red Rock Lakes uh, Wildlife Refuge. And um, and Bill had, you know, because he's basically the eyes and ears of the Centennial Valley uh, community, he had heard. Um, of, you know, some wolf sightings in that area. And so um, basically on that information alone, I went up in, I think it was sort of late 2016 and just wandered out into the general area where he had said that uh, there were some wolf sightings and that was pretty much the beginning of that story. And so how do you go about tracking a, a wolf pack? Well, so it was it was quite a quite an affair uh, because I think part of um, Bill West's teaching style was giving me absolutely the minimal amount of information uh, so as to um, allow for the greatest uh, learning opportunity. And so, um, as I indicated, um, he basically just gave me the sort of general area, and then uh, really all it came down to was me just getting out there and, and listening and, and, and looking for tracks and smelling and looking for scat. And, and, um, and so over the, over the, over the months, um, you know, I gradually began to put together the pieces and figured out where sort of the general area of where the wolves were denning. 
Um, but it was only after I had encountered things uh, like, you know, hair on that might have been caught on a strand of barbed wire, for instance, uh, and then later tracks. And then um, sort of the culmination of the of the of the the process, I think, would have uh, was when I uh, figured out where they were traveling and I set up a camera trap, the only one I had, and managed to capture the whole the entire pack um, on camera track, yeah, moving through around midnight at night, uh, presumably on their way over into Idaho. So um, it was it was a long process, and it really just started with the rumor, and then I heard them, uh, and then uh, I didn't realize it until many months later after I figured out where the den was that the first night I was in the Centennial Mountains, um, I had actually seen them, too, crossing the road, this logging road where I was, but I, d- I didn't realize it until much later when, when I was looking at a map and, and realized that the spot where they crossed the road was actually just directly above, about a quarter mile above their den site. So it was very interesting, just the process of, of discovery and, and putting all these pieces together and with very little input from, you know, anyone uh, other than, you know, uh, you know my own um, my own, uh, you know, agency and my own curiosity mm-hmm. really is what, what led to it. And you had never like tracked a wolf pack before. Like you were just kind of there oh, yeah. doing it as you learn, learning as you went. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I had done a writing residency in the Centennial Valley as part of the Taft Nicholson Environmental Education Center uh, back in, I think that was 2013 yeah, I think it was 2013 or 2014, and had learned a little bit about the valley at that time, but had very little conversation with anyone about the presence of wolves and grizzlies. And uh, But then, of course, as the years went on and I spent more and more time um, in the valley, um, you know, I became more interested. And then, you know, Bill West knew of my interest, and that's ultimately why he alerted me to the presence, the possibility of, of the presence of these wolves. And, and I should add, though, too, that that was a, that was a pretty big deal because um, one of the things you learn very quickly in places like Centennial Valley, uh, places where animals don't have protections uh, from hunters and trappers and so on, is that um, the information about the where, whereabouts of wolf packs uh, and therefore wolf dens um, is it's, it's confidential. Uh, technically, it's confidential information because if that information... Uh, were to get into the wrong hands, I, I guess wrong as a matter of perspective, obviously, but um, it would it could very well end in the ex- extermination of the entire pack. So he was really trusting me, I think, when he when he alerted me to the possibility of wolves. Wow. And so you have mentioned grizzlies is obviously part of your book. Um, so you've encountered. So what other animals did you encounter and learn about? Um, throughout researching and following this wolf pack? Well, so um, as, the, as the title indicates, I mean, probably the star of the show really was uh, the grizzly bear. Um, I actually had a, a grizzly bear encounter when I was in the valley. And, uh, and that was special for, for multiple reasons, but one of which was because um, I'd never seen a grizzly in the wild, um, obviously. And uh, and that was a pretty big deal. And, and the other part is that, you know, it was done safely from a, from a safe distance and there was no, uh, nothing negative about it. It was just had the opportunity to watch a, a grizzly, a sub-adult male grizzly um, kill in a meadow below my camp for about 25 minutes. And then, uh, and then you know, he flanked my camp and then went off into the woods and, and that was the end of it. But 
Um, but as a result of that, and, and also as a result of, of conflict with um, grizzly bears and, and wolves of light, uh, I, you know, I, I spend a, a good deal of my time uh, focusing on and learning about them. Um, but not just them. Uh, I also uh, spent some time observing and doing research on uh, sheep and cows. The really the I think m- most people would would agree um, are sort of the source of the conflict in that valley and other places throughout Montana and Idaho. Um, but then also skunks and um, and deer and, uh, and mountain bluebirds. I mean, basically any animal that. Um, I came across that gave me reason to, um, you know, to, to, to ask questions. And, and I guess, you know, that's, that's a, a pretty, pretty common thing to happen when you're in a place like that. So yeah, it was, it was neat. It was a neat experience. And, um, I was continually amazed by, um, all the different things that, um, that, that not only did these animals do, but how much those things had been studied and explained by, um, by scientists working in the field, um, information that I don't really uh, think uh, finds its way to perhaps the people that need it most. Mm-hmm. In in the description of your book, it says how animals are treated depends on the stories people tell about them. So, who are these people that you met, or the people you met, and what are their stories? Well, so um, as as um, part of my my uh, process, I made it a point uh, at every uh, turn to engage as many people as I possibly could, so as to um, you know get the com- the completest picture of of life in the valley and the and the many different ways of characterizing um, wildlife conflict, um, which was basically my focus. I was looking at how it was that people in the valley were attempting to coexist with these uh, apex predators. And so uh, as a result of that, um, I already mentioned a little bit about Bill. Um, Bill, though, I think deserves a little bit more time, if only because um, as the project leader, he really represented the views of of pretty much everybody living within that valley. And, And then also you know, visitors to the valley as well, or, or to the to the Red Rock Lakes Wildlife Refuge, and, and so you know that that was sort of my first opportunity to work with a biologist who was working actively working in the field, but then also negotiating the demands of uh, that humans uh, place on um, put on places like that. Um, so that was really instructive for me. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount from him, and um, uh, but then there were also there are others too who I think were more. If, if we think of the of the you know the the apex predator wildlife conflict as a kind of continuum, where on one end, you know, you have the self-professed wolf haters, uh, and then on the other hand, you know, you have the wildlife lovers. Um, I I would I would place Marcy, um, a, a self-described cattleman, and uh, in, in her entire life, um, somewhere sort of in in between that, maybe maybe left uh, more. You know, her views I think were more. Um, Sympathetic with the with the with the agricultural community's interests, but but at the same time, um, she was extremely uh, gracious with her um, input and her feedback um, on questions that I you know conversations that we had had in person, but then also uh, texting and really just um, helped me to better understand um, why it is that uh, the agricultural community um, you know looks at 
not that the agricultural community is a monolith because it's not. I mean, there are lots of different lots of different mentalities that are represented by the ranching community. But um, she she helped me to understand at least that community that uh, you know that she was most um, closely associated with. Um, but then another another um, interesting character uh, to have uh, come along was um, Carter Niemeyer, and uh, Carter Niemeyer um, is really quite famous, I would say, in the context of um, wolf management in general, but then also um, sort of wildlife management as well. And uh, Carter, uh, his, he was uh, a member of the embattled um, Wildlife Services Agency before it be actually became Wildlife Services. And um, Wildlife Services is the, the entity responsible for moving, removing um, problem animals um, from the landscape, and so uh, they they are often viewed as the the basically the tool of the agricultural community, and um, and so you know Carter was a member of that agency for many many years, and then he later retired, and then uh, notably became a wolf advocate. So he's kind of an interesting story in that case. But we actually brought him to the Taft Nicholson Center, so that was really cool because a lot of people. Uh, you know, got to hear from him, and um, a lot of people in the audience, you know, had never, uh, I, I think, had had the had the uh, the pleasure to um, hear his ideas, and so. Uh, but then there were other people as well. I don't know how much time we have. <laughs> there were a lot of. Do you want me to wrap that well, what, that well, answer we'll, up? Or? Well, I mean, we'll we'll let people you know read the book, and then they can kind of meet some of yeah, these characters. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of other characters, including ranch managers and, and law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there there are many different perspectives represented. I, I definitely want to get to this question of how some of the stories, these stories, contribute to the extinct, extinction of large predators and how some of them create protection and value. Um, can you go over that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, so I think, you know, the wolf is a, is a perfect example of an animal, that species, really, that um, has um, suffered its fair share of uh, destructive storytelling. And so, um, you know, as I suggested earlier in our time together, uh, you know, there, there's a continuum, I think, of, of, of wolf opponents, I guess you could say. And sort of at the, at the extreme end of that um, are the people that, that hate wolves and and basically, you know, want them wiped away from the landscape, um, and and part of how they signal that um, work, that perspective is by, you know, describing them as these sort of mindless land sharks that, you know, that oftentimes just kill for the fun of it, and 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 as evidence of that, they'll cite uh, the fact that sometimes, you know, when when wolves get into sheep her uh, sheep, they'll kill, you know, far more than than what they could ever possibly eat in a single sitting. Um, but, but we also know that, uh, and that, that, by the way, is what's described or known as surplus killing, uh, you know, the idea that wolves just kill for the fun of it. But, but we know that, um, that that's simply just not what's happening and that really what's happening is a number of things are going on. Um, another un- alternative story would be to point out how um, part of what is happening when, when wolves engage in that activity is that they are perhaps showing their younger members of their pack um, how to kill. That's one thing that's going on. Uh, but then they've also, um, they've all, researchers also indicated that oftentimes um, the, the, uh, the wolves will, will be scared off these kills before they can actually um, finish, 
feeding on them. And then, and not only that, but, but as we know, um, wolves and other predators will return to kills over and over and over again. So the idea that they're just doing it for the fun of it, I think is sort of absurd, but, uh, for whatever reason, it's continued to appeal to a certain, uh, faction of people who, um, you know, are looking for reasons to, um, to, to, uh, to again, exterminate, um, wolves from the landscape, but, but, but bears, grizzly bears suffer a similar, um, sort of mentality. And, and one of the things that I heard when I was up there, uh, is reference to what are called, uh, so-called bad bears and then also good bears. Um, and bad bears are bears who, you know, get into chicken coops and who eat, you know, grain out of silos or who, you know, kill sheep or whatever. Um, things that are contrary to human interests and, and good bears, of course, are the ones that, that stay out of those troubles, right, or stay out of those problems. Uh, but, the, but the irony, of course, of that is that bad bears um, are simply responding to the conditions that humans have created, right? And so, you know, whether that's leaving out um, attractants on the landscape, uh, something, by the way, that Centennial Valley is very good at not doing, um, or, um, you know, uh, or, or, you know, leaving dog food out or uh, not checking on animals um, adequately, um, you know, these are all opportunities for for bears and for um, domestic livestock to, you know, to get into trouble. So lots of different ways of, of talking about it, but um, those seem to be two of the more salient. Right. So I imagine a lot of these stories have to do with how the lives of large predators have changed over the last few hundred years. So just describe a little bit how they have changed. How how their lives have changed? Well, I know I know. Um, for instance, that um, you know, at the time Lewis and Clark came west, that um, you know, grizzly bears were here in Utah and throughout the West. Their you know their range was here, um, and of course many other animals as well. Uh, but of course, we also know that um, you know shortly thereafter uh, be, uh, began an extermination campaign, and so. I mean, I, I would like to think that an, an extermination, uh, extermination campaign of the, you know, the, the um, early um, 19th century, mid 19th century, and on. Uh, but, but I, but I, you know, I would like to, I would like to think that that conditions have improved for um, predators, apex predators, um, in that time or up until the present. Um, and, and I guess, you know, I, I suppose in many ways they have, because at the time, for instance, that grizzly bears were relisted, um, I, I think there were something like 50 in the park, in, in, in uh, Yellowstone National Park. And now there are several hundred. Um, so it's, you know, and it's sort of, from the point of view of many, I think, working in the opposite direction, where we've got a lot of bears and spaces, you know, not enough space to accommodate them. Um, so, you know, they're they're ending up in... In, in places, you know, you know, all points from there, you know, west and north, and 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 of course south into Idaho and and so on. So, um, and but but at the same time, although those numbers have increased with the grizzly bear, um, you know, there are, there are active and ongoing attempts uh, on on behalf of states like Wyoming and Idaho to to uh, begin a grizzly bear hunt. 
And um, so, and then, and of course, I mean, since I published this book in 2019 or whenever it was, uh, the bottom has just completely fallen out on the wolf situation. Uh, and, and that's because uh, states like Montana and Idaho um, ha- have both started moving um, in, a, in a direction that's more akin to the practices of their, you know, their eastern neighbor, Wyoming. And, and Wyoming is notorious as being a black hole for wildlife. So um, it's been disheartening to see how that has happened. Um, over the last few years, and, and as a result, I mean, I really, I really don't uh, know how, you know, things are going to turn out for these apex predators. So one thing your book explores is how humans should reevaluate their place in the natural order to maybe kind of help with this. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it can place a greater value on the rights of these animals? Well, yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm, I think that the, the, the first thing that, that, I mean, I'm just speaking for myself, um, the first thing that I, I found useful is um, the, you know, the, the process of thinking of myself as a species, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I know that that sort of goes without saying uh, among, among many people, but um, my, my sense is that too few of us perhaps even recognize ourselves as a species right. because the moment you, you do that, the moment you, you think of yourself as a species and, and not as something separate from or, or other than um, the, the larger community of common descent, then that creates a whole new set of responsibilities and questions and, um, you know, things that we might do in an effort not so much to emphasize our differences. I mean, I think it was, it was uh, Darwin who had said, you know, that we're special animals, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and by that he meant, you know, that we can reason, right? So we're not driven solely by instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think that we have a responsibility as the species that finds itself in charge um, to, to recognize the ways in which we share um, many of our, um, you know, not necessarily our desires, but many of our values and uh, our, our habits, our tendencies um, with other animals as well. And, mm-hmm. and, and the moment you begin to broaden and enlarge in that story, um, it, it comes with added difficulty and responsibility, but, but then it also, it also allows for a world that is much more, I mean, we're all, we always talk about inclusivity. Um, I mean, this is really, I think, goes to the heart of that whole idea that, that you know, that's how you um, achieve inclusivity is by recognizing the way in which all things are connected mm-hmm. uh, and, and perhaps not spending as much time uh, emphasizing their differences. So, so. Before we end, before we close, I just wanted to give our listeners a chance to know that if they're interested in learning more about your book, reading your book, they can come to an actual live book launch on uh, Friday, May 27th at Sam Weller Books at 6 p.m., correct? And you'll be there? Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to, to seeing people if they, if they can make it out. That'd be great. That was Maximilian Werner, Associate Professor and Lecturer of Writing and Rhetoric Studies. His book, Wolves, Grizzlies, and Greenhorns, Death and Coexistence in the American West, can be found on Amazon. For more information about the University of Utah College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu, and don't forget to subscribe to Humanities Radio.